G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How you going? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be back with you again on this mentalising topic. Absolutely. It's always good to do a uh, bit of a follow-up on a topic, but really enjoyed last week's episode on mentalisation. We've called today's episode More Mentalising, Some Therapy Strategies. So... We will be talking a little bit more, as you say, about the idea of mentalization and mentalizing. And we'll just mention as well, like today, we're, we're doing a bit of a part two to last week's episode as well. So if you haven't heard last week's episode, it might be worth going back and giving it a bit of a listen, just because we're probably going to be cutting a few corners today in terms of we covered off a few things last week that we might refer to today, but we won't go into the deep dive this week. We might uh, cover off on a few more strategies this week, Dad. So before we get too far into it, do you want to just give everyone a bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Yes, well, as we described last week, mentalising is about looking to understand our thoughts and feelings and intentions that underlie our own and other people's behaviour. It's looking for that greater understanding about ourselves and others in terms of our thoughts and feelings and intentions. And it's partly accepting that all of us are going to look at the world well, through different eyes, in different ways. And it really helps if we can have an understanding of how other people see us. And then in turn, how we see others and how we respond to each other's ways of seeing each other, if you like. It's a way of having more of a deeper appreciation of our similarities and differences, if you like. And that really helps us in our communication, in our trust and in our well-being. Well, certainly in... We touched on this a little bit last week, but one of the things that stood out to me last week was, I suppose, this notion that everyone develops our ability to mentalise slightly differently. It's not as if everyone develops the ability straight from early childhood. It you know, potentially can be a slightly different time frame for people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not something that we can develop over time. And I think that's where some of the things that we're going to be talking about today really getting into the nuts and bolts of how to go about improving our mentalization, I think that's going to be really good to just touch on some of those strategies that after we did speak about, I suppose, it a bit more generally last week. Yes, and one thing that becomes clear when you think about mentalization and what it involves is a whole lot of standard therapy approaches are based on this idea of having greater insight, greater awareness into our own thoughts and feelings and intentions, and in turn, others. And so what we're looking to do is to make some of that a little bit more explicit because I haven't really previously heard people emphasise so much about how therapy's on about mentalising. This emphasis on awareness and understanding, actually often therapies can have a particular focus on change, if you like, on problem-solving and change. But then it can sometimes get into a trap of looking as though it's trying to identify, if you like, bad thoughts and feelings and replace them with good thoughts and feelings. Well, partly that's a fairly naive and simplistic approach, but we're likely to have even better ways of appreciating ourselves and others and basically finding more effective or balanced ways of dealing with situations if we have that deeper awareness and understanding of ourselves and others. Well, I think that's a really good point that you make about that idea of, you know, not labelling things as like good and bad feelings because like in many ways that was one of the things that I took out of, of last week's podcast and looking into this topic. Like 
For example, if we label things good and bad feelings and then simply look to avoid all of the bad feelings, well, that's going to rob us of our ability to mentalize in a way because every other person who's been through a comparable feeling that's, for example, negative, well, if we go through a negative feeling and you know we make sense of that and we accept it and we go through it, well, then we can you know, empathize in, in, you know, an authentic sense, in the actual sense that we're talking about, like that actually allows you to better mentalize, to better empathize. If you have an understanding about your, you know, quote unquote, bad feelings, as well as your good feelings. So it seems to me that is in many ways a bit of a central point to this in terms of we don't want to be avoiding feelings. We just want to be looking at, I suppose, be looking at gaining an understanding in what they are, as you say. Yes, because also we don't want to get into a pattern of looking to censor or just suppress our feelings. If we do just try and block or deny feelings, they tend to get stronger. Like, say, with obsessive compulsive disorder, if people say, you know, just stop trying to act on that urge, or if someone is thinking to themselves, don't eat the chocolate cake in the fridge. If you're trying to stop a certain reaction or feeling, it can actually intensify it in a certain kind of way. So part of mentalising is about recognising that our thoughts and feelings and reactions will have a place. And at times we might feel they get out of balance or they're in conflict with what we would prefer. Well, even then by having an awareness or an understanding of our reactions, that's more likely to help us make different choices more effectively. So it's partly about accepting ourselves. We can still look at change, but not just censorship or just judging ourselves. Well, absolutely, yeah. The classic one that I've heard is, you know, don't think of the pink elephant. And then the first thing that you think of, of course, pink elephant. But let's let's start to get into maybe some ways of... I suppose processing our feelings in a way, that seems to be part of this too. And one thing that you know, many people get great benefit from is the idea of journaling. Do you want to just maybe speak to how journaling can help us, I suppose, mentalise and even gather our thoughts? Yes, well, many people will have kept a diary at some stage of their lives and that's a form of journaling and people can choose in that to, again, note some of their thoughts or feelings or even secrets, reactions to situations. Sometimes people will talk about just things that they did, but often people will be acknowledging something about their personal reactions to things. Well, journaling is used in many forms of therapy to help people have more personal insight by noting down their thoughts and feelings and reactions in particular situations. So there's a particular cognitive behavioural therapy technique called a thought record schedule. And typically what you do is, especially if you had an unwanted or uncomfortable or difficult reaction in a certain situation, and you want to understand more about that and reflect, you note down the situation itself, you note down how you felt in the situation and you rate the intensity of that, say on a 0 to 10 scale. Then you look to note down your thoughts about that situation and also how you reacted or what you did. So you're noting down how you felt, what you thought and how you did. And from a cognitive behavioural therapy perspective, the whole idea of that is to be able to identify more the link between your thoughts and feelings and how they might tend to come up in some situations more than others, how that might influence your actions in some way. So it's looking at a deeper appreciation of yourself, 
But when this is done best is when it's done with a level of acceptance and curiosity and interest. Not, I'm an idiot for thinking this way or what a rat bag that I did that. It's starting off from that curiosity and that open-minded appreciation and it also helps you explicitly learn to pick up some ways that our thinking, if you like, might not be so mentalised. So in CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, we look for kind of thinking where we might get into trouble a little bit with, say, black and white thinking or just selective attention, just focusing on what went badly rather than what went well, or overgeneralising, if you like, or exaggerating some of our reactions. So basically, in cognitive behavioural therapy, it's very explicitly looking at that. But even if we don't go through such an explicit exercise... Many forms of therapy encourage a kind of journaling so people can describe, well, also what's meaningful to them. People can journal positive experiences as well. But something, but also with things that are challenging or stressful, it helps you reflect. And as we talked about last time, mentalising is a lot about reflection to understanding more about ourselves. Well, definitely. And like it seems to me there's an element of journaling too, which, you know, in many ways, it could be through a conversation with a friend or, you know, family member, of course, or even at times, you know, thinking about things in a certain way. I think, you know, journaling goes certainly a lot further than just plainly thinking about it. But, like, it seems to me that the idea that it taps into is if we can externalise our feelings almost to ourselves in a way as much as anyone else. Like, that's obviously what journaling does. Like, you don't have to show it to anyone, but... I know I find with myself, for example, like there might be certain attitudes that you have or sort of beliefs that you've developed over time and, you know, you might really kind of believe it right up to the point where it comes out of your mouth and then you just think, oh, that, that hold on, something jars there with whether it be my values or, you know, the rational part of my brain is going, hold on, something's not right there <laughs> or whatever it is. But it's through that process of almost having it out in front of you and then, you view it slightly differently. It's, you know, you're not so attached to it because it's not internalised in the same way. It's almost like simply through putting things out there, you view them in a slightly different light and then that can really help to, I suppose, view them differently and, and maybe just unlock a little bit of thinking in a way. And yeah, like that, that certainly seems to me that if you can externalise your thoughts through a journal, it will inherently is likely to change even just how you think about them in the first place. Yes, and there's some specific techniques beyond what we'll discuss here. For example, autobiographical writing about trauma experiences, where it's been found that if people write about an experience of, for example, a car accident or a traumatic situation in a particular kind of way, with a particular kind of structure, that helps people get a more coherent narrative, a more integrated narrative about their experience. And when people can tell a story about a trauma experience in an integrated way, the story has a beginning, a middle and an ending and the person can acknowledge thoughts and feelings they have about that situation, that actually helps people recover better from the trauma. And in a sense, that's what a lot of therapy is. People in expressing themselves to a therapist are partly hearing themselves talk out loud. And when people are doing that in a somewhat reflective way, hopefully with a degree of self-compassion and acceptance, so helping people be honest about their different reactions and identify some of their maybe deeper or more hidden feelings or reactions, again, it helps the person process their feelings more 
and people become more fluent in talking about even challenging situations. And well, I've just got a quick question about that then. Like, for example, is it best for someone to, if they're writing in that situation, is it best to write from their own point of view? Because, I, for example, I could think, you know, say you've been through a situation, I write a narrative about a character that it happened to. I could almost see a situation where after time, you could almost sort of, yeah, release some of the pressure of yourself onto that character in a way. It's, it's almost that you're not necessarily going through it in your own shoes as much. Like, I wonder if, yeah, if there's real benefit to looking at it from one's own perspective as, you know, me, Rowan, who went through this, or is it just the act of writing about it at all? Okay, I think that there is something even more direct about people writing about it themselves. But I think, as you're saying, if we read a book about a character or we watch a movie and we relate to the person involved in the movie, then that in itself is a form of understanding a greater awareness about ourselves. So that's a form of mentalising. But it's certainly a more explicit form of mentalising to be able to write about something autobiographically or otherwise more directly reflect on our own thoughts and feelings. Well, I wonder if then that, I suppose, relating to characters in a movie, like part of that's almost like practising mentalising in a way. Like it's such an opportunity to, yeah, interface with the idea, for lack of a better term. But... Both Dad, to move on, like you talk about, you know, relating to people, I know there's some strategies from marital therapy which help people, I suppose, get on the same page a little bit better in terms of their mentalisation. So do you just give us maybe one of those strategies? Yes, and so something we would have referred to a bit last week, but one of the key kind of things with marital therapies and exercise would often be partners taking turns to talk about a particular challenging but meaningful issue, so some issue of concern they both relate to that each partner is going to have some thoughts and feelings about and where one person looks to put in words some of their thoughts and feelings about that particular situation and the other looks to listen attentively and before responding or saying what their thoughts and feelings are, looking to convey in their own words what they believe that their partner has looked to convey. And looking for a bit the intention behind that as well and certainly looking to pick up on some of the feelings behind that. And the more accurately that people can learn to do that, the more it can build further trust, understanding and trust. And then if in turn the person's waited for their turn after expressing to the other person, then checking with them really helps to check our responses with each other. And then if that's relatively accurate and then maybe being corrected a little bit or maybe a more refined understanding from feedback from one's partner, then again that person has an opportunity to say what their thoughts and feelings are about that issue. Now, that's something that would be used in many different kinds of marital therapy, that basic kind of exercise in some form or other, and that's clearly a form of mentalising. And it'll only really work best if people are truly curious and interested in what their partner has to say, not looking to just correct them or not just looking to set them right, it's going to come from that attitude of curiosity, openness, preferably kindness, compassion as well. And that's where I think if it's done well, it's different from what Martin Seligman often characterised marital therapy as being, he described that a lot of marital therapy until much more recent times was basically teaching people how to fight better. 
If that was the case, then it wouldn't have been done so well to help people mentalise. But there were certainly some researchers, the Gottmans, who came along, who had a form of marital therapy that's often referred to in positive psychology or cognitive behavioural circles, and where they did a whole lot of exercises that are basically helping people understand their partner better. And that includes things like developing love maps. A love map is spelling out what you understand your partner's, say, favourite colour to be, favourite food, where they might like to go on holiday, what their thoughts are about certain kinds of issues. That's a way of showing an understanding of one's partner, having their point of view in mind. That's just one strategy the Gottmans would have used. But yes, a whole lot of marital therapy is actually geared towards helping each partner mentalise each other. Well, it seems that like that little exercise that you described there, like that's such a good tool for validation in a way. Like, I wonder if part of marital therapy is maybe teaching people to communicate in a way that just allows both of those people to say, oh, I know you understand me in this situation. Like, I can think of, I'm not married, Dad, but I know a lot of, you know, little conflicts and arguments that I've had over the time. You kind of go afterwards, like, I actually don't know if we, like, I think, almost in agreement about like sort of certain elements of that and there was just a element of miscommunication which got in the way and I just think it kind of got out of hand a little bit and it seems to me that like obviously marital therapy like you need a lot of those distilled tools for validation but I wonder if that's kind of part of what you know we're talking about today that's part of what mentalization is it's it's really looking for a almost distilled way an explicit way a simple way, an easy way for both people in the situation to approach each other and go, this is what I think in the situation. The other person goes, I understand it to be this. The first person says, oh, yes, you know, you, you get where I'm coming from and sort of vice versa. Like without that almost level of kind of understanding of, oh, you get where I'm coming from. Like it, it's just always, you know, more emotions going to enter the situation and more emotions going to enter the situation or it'll, it'll spiral out of control from there. Yes, and that's the thing. These things actually aren't easy because often if we have a conversation about a meaningful, say, conflict issue, then our emotions will be strong. But that's where it helps to have some kind of method, if you like, or practice to help manage with that. So looking to pick the time where people can express themselves to each other in turn and checking, that checking with each other being a key thing. So that's one of the things to allow for that we're not saying it's easy for us to maybe experience and be managing especially strong painful emotions like frustration or anger or anxiety in a particular situation. But you mentioned such an important word, validation. If people are stuck in an impasse on a particular kind of issue, if people don't have a way of first looking to validate each other somewhat, like express some level of supportive validation, just even non-verbally by their posture, gestures, tone of voice, if people don't show an interest in their partner and an openness, there'll likely be no worthwhile or helpful conversation that follows on from that. That's actually something that we call extensive cues or overt cues, giving the cue to the other person that we're noticing them, we're hearing them, we're ready to listen to them. That's what helps people then have more trust that they can express themselves and be heard and then hopefully having a number of positive experiences that help to build on that.
Let's maybe look into a few more of these strategies now because, like as you say, like validation seems to be such a central part of what we're trying to build up in a in an interaction between people when there's mentalization involved. And you mentioned some things from marital therapy there. I know there's a few things from group therapy which are a little bit similar in some ways, but I think also highlight well maybe a way that we can go about mentalizing. What's maybe a role play exercise? Because I believe there's some role play exercises from group therapy which help out with people's ability to mentalize with each other. Okay, well, one of the most obvious examples would be in a psychodrama group. And in a psychodrama group, then someone might describe, say, a conflict situation they're involved in with maybe friends or family members. And they can get other people in the group to act out their other friends or family members in that kind of situation. And then they can be acting out this situation in front of others in the group who can then observe it. And just the fact of reenacting something helps a person reflect on their own behaviour. But what can then happen is the person can then be asked to swap roles with this other friend or family member in that situation and see how they respond to someone else who's acting as you did towards them. So in other words, it's acting out as though you were a different person in that kind of situation. And that's a very direct way of looking to appreciate someone else's point of view. And that principle can also be used, for example, with marital partners in a particular situation. They could be discussing things in a certain way and be asked to reverse roles and act out how they think the other person is reacting in that situation. And it can give people a bit of a different lens to how their partner might be seeing things. So basically, taking a different perspective can sometimes be as literal as acting things out from another person's perspective. Well, I like that notion of, I guess, seeking other perspectives in that way. Like we spoke last week about the leading teams model, which is a program from Australia. It started in, I believe, AFL, but it's spread now to other sports where basically within the team environment in Australian rules football, they'd get every individual out the front of the group and then the team, members of the team, would have their opportunity to essentially air their grievances with that person. They'd say, oh, you know, these are the, the issues that I've had with you as a teammate and then all of that would be out in the open and they could then I suppose go about kind of processing that and moving on from that but the interesting thing to me there is that you know like sporting organizations like they're some of the most intense high performance environments in the world and if they're going out of their way to make some of these ideas explicit we might be talking about some of this stuff in a group therapy context or in a marital therapy context but like these are some organizations which are in the pursuit of excellence, you know, like they might have people who have mental health difficulties here and there, but their overall mission is to perform at the absolute best level. And if they're looking into some of these ideas and I suppose distilling down some of these ideas as well, well then to me that suggests that, you know, it's not as if they're only appropriate for a therapy room or only appropriate for people going through therapy like there seems to be an element of high performance which relies on some of this sort of stuff that you mentioned yes the notion of being open to other people's points of view i sometimes think of that as one plus one equals more than two and it helps our well-being 
And it also helps our performance, as you're describing, if we're open to incorporating different points of view. But I do want to describe just something general about group therapy as well. It's actually underused, I think, in mental health treatments and certainly in the psychology field. So much of psychology takes place one-to-one in individual therapy, and that's convenient and tailored to the person and their interests. But also there's such an extra advantage sometimes in a group where by definition, you're hearing other people's perspectives. It's easier to be objective, if you like, when you hear someone else talk about their experiences in a situation. So, for example, if people are experiencing social anxiety, for many years we had a group for people with avoidant personality difficulties. We've got another podcast on that, but it's where people experience a lot of general social anxiety, concerned about approval of others that might be inhibited in how they react in certain situations. Well, we started a group for people who hated the idea of being in a group. Generally, when people have those social avoidant tendencies, it's frightening the idea of being seen in front of other people. But to meet with, for example, seven or eight other people and go around a circle and people would describe why they came along to this group One of the most useful things that comes up is the principle of universality. Oh, wait a minute. Other people have some similar thoughts and feelings to what I do, and they react in similar ways to what I do. That helps for self-acceptance. That can help for self-compassion, but it also can help for self-understanding. But there's also another aspect of that. People also recognise some differences between themselves and other people and hopefully feel accepted with that. So there's so much that really helps us, dare I say, being human, feeling, well, feeling human and feeling accepted. There's an overlap in our reactions, but there are also differences and recognising that there's that balance that helps make the world go round. Groups can really help with that, including therapy groups. Well, let's get into a couple more of what the strategies could be within a group then, because I know there's a few more there. And I know one of them's, I believe it's called Three Truths and a Lie, which is a a great little exercise to do with a group. Do you want to describe that one for us? Okay, now this even could be used in a family group as well, but often it might be another group of people. It could be a work group looking to help build up that understanding of each other. And so basically what people do is write down four statements three of which are true and one of which is a lie and other people have to guess what the lie is. So that's partly a way of looking to also use one's intuition and sense of someone else to try and gauge which seems to not fit but also it's a kind of fun exercise that helps people get to know each other a bit more, even things behind what meet the eye. And I know there's a, another exercise, Dad, about stepping into someone else's shoes, another role play exercise. Do you want to let us know about that one? Okay, and this is a very simple and literal way of encouraging mentalisation of others. And basically what this means is it could be a family member, it could be a group member, and basically getting some paper and literally drawing an outline of that person's shoes. And then another family member or, say, group member stands in those shoes and keeps discussing a particular issue from the other person's point of view, how they think the other person will see it. 
And so then, of course, afterwards, people can have a discussion about how accurate that seems to the individual themselves or what other people in the group or family, how they would see it. But that's very literally looking to develop this intuitive understanding, but also that openness and looking to gauge how other people see things. Well, it reminds me of that thing a, a wise man once said, Dad, about how before you criticise someone, you should always walk a thousand miles in their shoes. That way, when you criticise them, you're a thousand miles away and you've got their shoes. <laughs> so maybe slightly different for that one. But I suppose what comes to mind for me describing particularly those last two that you mentioned there, the three truths in the line, stepping in someone's shoes, like there's an element to which... Maybe for older kids, it, like it would be a, a good thing, but it would also be like quite a big ask to ask, you know, maybe say younger primary school age kids to really rationalise things to that degree. I wonder if there's maybe an exercise, like say for kids, that works really well that builds upon this idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Yes, well, actually, the exercise I like most from the book I mentioned last week about mentalisation-based treatment with families, we mentioned about Peter Fonagy and I Aizen had described a number of exercises that families can use. And I love this one about stethoscopes. This could be a younger child and encouraging a younger child to look to have a perspective of how their mum or dad, their parent might respond in a particular situation. And they talked about this stethoscope. And the stethoscope can be the child holding the stethoscope to, for example, their mum or dad's head and then thinking, what are they thinking? And then the child guesses, oh, dad's thinking this or mum's thinking that and then checking with them. But the other thing I like about the stethoscope is the child can also put it on their mum or dad's heart. What do they think their heart is saying? or even put on their gut. What do they think their gut is saying? The thing I really like about that exercise is it's something we can use individually. I think one kind of mentalisation for ourselves is just asking ourselves, also as an adult, what does our head say in this situation? What does our heart say in this situation? What does our gut say in this situation? Because sometimes there might be something that comes across a little bit different. And in our culture, we so much emphasise the head, but this shows that mentalising is appreciating other kind of feelings and reactions. It's not just our thinking or cognition, so to speak. So I really love that exercise. And certainly I notice as a general guideline, if adults, for example, are in a difficult position to make a decision, then if they can think things through to the point where their head and their heart and their gut are aligned and say this is the way to go, that's something that can give people a fairly high level of confidence that that's worth doing. So that kind of exercise that a child might do helps be attuned to head, heart and gut, but also in terms of other people. And I suppose, Dad, just to finish up with one final strategy, there's a, a strategy particularly used in families, I believe, where people write a letter to the problem. Do you want to just let us know a little bit about that one? Yes, and mention this because it's an even more sophisticated strategy for if a situation is very challenging. Just say if a family member has an eating disorder, then it might involve all the family members being involved in a particular therapy situation or an exercise where each family member writes a letter to the problem with expressing two things. One, expressing positive things 
about the problem, another expressing negative things about the problem. Now this involves mentalizing in terms of not just looking at different reactions that someone can have because in the end the family members can share these letters and their observations but it's also developing a differentiated understanding that for example if a family member has a problem such as schizophrenia or an eating disorder or some other kind of difficulty sometimes there will be some benefits to it. Sometimes for example it might have brought the family together in some way or sometimes it means that they might have altered another kind of ritual or whatever that they did that the person didn't want to be involved with or it could be anything but it just means thinking about things in a more complex kind of way. Well, I like that in terms of as well like another aspect of that it seems to me is that also you're almost externalizing the issue like outside the group or the family or like the thing that comes to mind is for example Neil Danaher obviously going through the horrendous challenge of motor neuron disease Whereas, you know, him and his family and everyone around him refers to it, you know, as the beast, as, you know, we're all fighting the beast together. And I suppose what that does is that that creates a real team feel as well for whoever's facing the challenge together. Like, you know, just through virtue of all challenging the same thing, like, you know, it can build that sense of camaraderie and facing adversity together. And I suppose it reminds me of something that I heard one time, which I think it relates well here and relates to what we've really been speaking about over the last couple of weeks. Like this is just to finish up from me, Dad. But I remember someone saying to me once in terms of I was having a conflict with someone and I was describing it to them and they said to me, yeah, but like they're still in your corner. In terms of like, you know, like, yeah, you might be having this little conflict, but overall, they want the best for you. Like, you know, you might just have a little misunderstanding now, but they're on your team. Like, they, you know, want to support you, and there might be this, you know, little issue at the moment, but overall, broadly, it's a good faith relationship. Like, you know, you're on the same page, on the same team, sort of thing. And to me, that kind of really stood out. And I've almost used that in other situations where you might have a little conflict or you might, perceive a conflict it might not even necessarily be you know you've had a conversation with someone that's you know something's come up or anything like that but just whenever there's I suppose perceived distance or yeah conflict attention anything like this like to me if I think to myself well like they're still in my corner it allows me to then go well hold on what's maybe the unlock in our little relationship at the moment you know what's the little hurdle that maybe we can't get past that if we do get past it well, then we're both going to recognise we're still in the same corner, we're still on the same team. But at the same time, like maybe there is something there at the moment which is just standing in the way that we're communicating. But overall, the main thing that I think about is, hold on, they're still in my corner. And, you know, I want them in my corner and, you know, they, you know they've still got strengths and all this sort of stuff. It's not as if, you know, they're going to be in the other corner. They're, you know, my opposition or, you know, people that I'm kind of fighting against and, you know, they're my real adversaries, all this sort of stuff. Like, it's like, well, hold on, like, you know, it's just a, it's a little obstacle we need to get past. But I suppose it's just a, a nice way that I enjoy thinking about things, Dad, because I suppose, you know, it's a sport analogy. It's maybe a little bit black and white in a way, but uh, I think it gets across the notion that even if there are miscommunications or you might not necessarily have a level of understanding with someone at a particular time, you know, if they're still in your corner, it's likely that you're both going to be... I suppose at least aligned enough to try and find a compromise or try and find a level of shared understanding and way through. 
Well, I like that example and the mutual interest and support that's involved in that. And that reminds me of what I'll mention as a final example of what I thought was one of the most sophisticated therapy approaches I'd ever heard of. And it came from a field called narrative therapy by an Australian, Michael White, a wonderful social worker who sadly died quite a number of years ago, but he left this wonderful legacy of narrative therapy. And narrative therapy was about, for example, helping to bring a family together around a particular challenging problem. And just say if the teenage son was engaging in some stealing. And so there's this real tension in the family because the parents could have been thinking of their son as like a thief or a kleptomaniac or something like that, say this 13-year-old son, for example. Well, anyway, what they did, they brought the family in and they said, look, we've all got a problem here with light fingers. And light fingers is impacting on, say, Johnny over here or whatever. And what we're here to do is to try and see if we can do something that can help counter light fingers. So... Let's look at some situations that come up and they'll have some different discussion about different circumstances and in time the therapist will be asking the parents, for example, about arguments that happen in the family and might be asking the parents, if you were to argue even more frequently in front of John, do you think that light fingers would find it easier or more difficult to impact on him? It was this wonderful externalising approach that you described before. And Michael White developed this approach actually also for patients with schizophrenia. And they could think, for example, they wouldn't have used the word crazies or whatever, but they would have had a way of objectifying the problem outside of the individual. So you've got a person impacted by schizophrenia rather than a schizophrenic, so to speak. And then look at other family members and how they interact with each other and what contact they have or what conflict there might be in the family. And it's encouraging each of the family members what they might do or not do that influences, if you like, tensions or stresses within the family, but also light fingers or the schizophrenia. And so I thought that was just such a wonderful, thoughtful approach. And when we think about it in terms of mentalising, it really gets to the core of acknowledging there are different ways of looking at things. Each of us will look at things differently, but also our reactions will impact on others around us and vice versa. So how do others see things? And in turn, how does our reaction to other people, how does that affect how they interact with us? So it's really looking at a network of interactions. And when people do that from a position of, as you say, they're in your corner or in a situation of mutual support, respect, interest, people are showing that openness, that flexibility, people are showing that attitude of we can learn from each other, can learn about myself, yourself, the relationship between us, through having those kind of conversations, then that certainly can go a long way to bring about more harmony in relationships. Oh, certainly, Dad, and oh, it's been great to chat about this topic today and last week as well. It's We mentioned at the start of last week's podcast, like, I think it's just such a, a central theme of, of psychology, of you know life in a way, like not to get sort of too deep about it, but like, I think it's interesting, particularly with psychology, if you look at, you know, so many, you know, quote-unquote psychological disorders, like to me, if we look at it in these terms, like it's it's people who've had their ability to mentalise affected in a way and 
that can manifest in a whole range of ways and you know not to trivialize it and all this sort of stuff but at the same time like this is a, a central part of human psychology it's the way that we interface kind of our own internal world with others around us and it's the ability for that to kind of match up and all this sort of stuff so these are these are big themes and i think it's been good to even go through some of the exercises that we went through today even just to i suppose yeah make this stuff a little bit more explicit distill down and yeah i think i'm going to be interested in how much i come back to this stuff over the next little while dad because to me it's just a, a real tool to you know even connect with other people and learn more about yourself too it like i'm, I'm speaking way too deep here but <laughs> at the same time it uh it seems to be a, a central theme for so many things yes it's that basic philosophical position isn't it Know thyself, but be interested in knowing others as part of that. 